So I want to talk to you about getting us back on point. Uh, the nature of distraction. Um, the enemy of the church is not like overt sin. The enemy of the church is distraction. And so I want to start by telling a story and talking about how words work. Words don't really matter. How people picture words functioning matter. Actually, sometimes what looks like an argument about what we say is actually just an argument about how someone pictures what we say. So, so for instance, there's a way to say something that's true that creates an untrue imagination. So I'll give you an example. So if I was to say, Jesus is your judge, that's true. Um, but the problem is, is the picture it creates. I've asked lots of people, when I say Jesus is your judge, what do you picture? And they say, oh, well, I picture a, a black robe wearing courtroom official listening to your life, you know, deciding if you're in or out, right or wrong, guilty or not guilty. When I was a kid, my Sunday school teacher told me that one day I would stand in front of Jesus as my judge and he was going to put my whole life on a video screen behind me um, for everybody to see, which leads to all kinds of questions like, how boring can you make heaven? Like, really? Like, seriously, 13.5 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. Come on. Imagine that like, hey, strap in everybody. Next up, Methuselah. No, 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 right? Seriously, right? So there's that kind of image. The problem with that is, is that in Hebrew, the word for judge is not a courtroom official. It's someone anointed by God to set you free. And you already knew that because there's an entire book in the Bible called the book of judges. And those people aren't courtroom officials. They're people anointed by God to set us free. Like in Psalm 86, it says, God is the judge of the orphan. Why are we judging orphans? Like, unless judge means something different in their world. And the problem is that is we said, hey, Jesus is your judge. Now come on in, press in, get close to Jesus. No one wants to be in court. No mentally healthy person wants to be in court. And so we need to recapture the beauty of the word judge. Hey, one day you'll face Jesus and he'll judge you. What that means is you'll finally be in the presence of the one fully anointed by God to set you free. Now come on, press into that. Which leads me to the word Christian. I'd like to recapture the beauty of the word Christian, because I think it's lost its beauty, simply because, not because of what the word actually means, but because of how people picture the word working. Um, I, I had an encounter, a uh, very meaningful one. Uh, he's, he's become a good friend of mine, actually. He's, a, um, he's an atheist uh, that I didn't know was an atheist. When, when I first met him, uh, he's just the nicest person I'd ever met, really, just full of compassion and grace and kindness and generosity. And, and one time we were having a chat just about life and he, he made a statement, that, and he was quite passionate about it, like, you know, about how we treat people matters, and we should be loving and kind and treat our neighbors as we would have ourselves. He was, he was making statements about how he was living that was obvious to me was a Christ idea. And so I assumed he was a Christian. So in, in his excitement, I got excited, and I said, well, of course, that's how Christ compels us to live. To which he responded, are you a Christian? And I could just tell by his voice, I was like, oh, so my response to that was, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And he goes, what do you mean? That's a yes or no question. I said, it's not a yes or no question because I don't know what you think a Christian is. So why don't you tell me what you think a Christian is? And I'll tell you if I'm that. And so he proceeded to tell me he grew up in Christianity and then deconverted and became an atheist. He's probably a deist now. Uh, and, I, and, and so we got to chatting and... Um, I said, well, tell me, tell me what you think the gospel is. And he, 
he told me how the gospel was presented to him in the church he grew up in. And with all respect, whoever presented the gospel to this man should do God a favor and never share the gospel again. It was horrendous. And I realized that he didn't reject Jesus. He rejected the image of Jesus presented to him. And so the word Christian, which in its root is simply people who live like Jesus lived, has become about other things. Like a group of people who believe something once so that they can go somewhere else when they die. Which, honestly, we embrace heaven. We, we embrace that death doesn't get the last word. But Christianity is hardly waiting to go somewhere else. Christianity is about a different way of being in the world. And it's beautiful. The, the, my atheist friend said to me, he said, the problem with Christianity is that if the whole world converted and thought like Christians thought, the world would not be better. And any system, that if the whole world converts to how you think, if the world's not better, there's a hole in the narrative. I totally agree. What, I'm, what I don't agree with is that every Christian thinks like he was told Christians think. So I'd like to recapture the beauty of the word Christian. See, a Christian... Is being, Christianity is being salt and light in the world by three ways. And it's, it could be more complex than this, so, but I need to make it simple. A, a Christian is someone who sees the world how Jesus saw the world. They wake up every day intentional about seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, and applying Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture. And, and I would make a case that if the whole world converted and saw the world how Jesus did, saw God how Jesus did, and applied Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture, I think the world would obviously be a better place. Let, 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 let's look at those three things. Seeing the world how Jesus saw the world. How did Jesus see the world? Well, number one, he saw a world with no class systems. No, no us and them, in and out clean. And Jesus, Jesus came into the world where there was a clear divide. Clean, unclean. Jew, Gentile. Male, Female, slave, free. Jesus is like, ah, now what year is it? Let's, uh, seriously, no class systems. One God holding the whole entire thing together. One insistence indwelling spirit who holds the whole thing together. And what that means is you can't treat women worse than men. You can't treat blacks worse than whites. You can't treat the poor worse than the rich. You can't do that. You could do that if God is somewhere else you know, looking down on creation. But if God is indwelling creation, for by him and through him and for him all things are made and in him all things hold together. If there's one spirit holding the whole thing together, you gotta treat everybody kindly. And that would make the world a better place. There's no clean or unclean. One God redeeming the broken thing. It, for Jesus, the way Jesus saw the world, it was never who is worthy. It was always who is thirsty. It was never who, want, who is worth it. It was always who wants it. And that's two different things. Can you imagine with me a world where you couldn't treat women worse than men, blacks worse than whites, poor worse than rich? You'd have no misogyny, no racism, no egalitarianism. You, could, you, couldn't, you wouldn't have um, any ethnocentricity. You wouldn't treat one race or culture worse than another. Why? Because it's, it's one God holding the whole thing together. You imagine a world where you don't see people as us and them, clean and unclean, but rather God at work in every single person. You imagine a world where we quit asking who's worth it to God and we start asking who wants it, who's thirsty. 
And, and we believe that if you want it, God is more, if you want it one millimeter, God is willing to meet you the rest of the way and involve himself in your story to make a better narrative. I, I would think that would make the world a better place. The way Jesus saw the world was no class systems, no clean and unclean, never who is worthy, always who is thirsty. And he taught his followers to use their power, to use their freedom, to use their money, to use their stuff, to prioritize the most vulnerable, to prioritize the poor, to lift the lowly to the level of the elite, and to always give precedent to those who are weaker in conscience. Can you imagine a world like that? Where followers of Jesus were known worldwide for using their freedom to make the most vulnerable's life better, to make the poor's life better, to make those who are weaker and conscious safer. Can you imagine that? Let's just stop and ask ourselves a question. In the last, I don't know, year and a half, have we used our power, our liberty, our freedom to behave in such a way that makes the vulnerable's life safer, the poor's life better, and those of weaker conscience safer? Have we done that? Because that is what Christianity is supposed to be known for. Seeing the world how Jesus saw the world. No class system, no clean and unclean. God at work in all things, redeeming it, restoring it, renewing it. Never who is worthy, but always who is thirsty, who wants it, so that we can be inspired by that goodness to make our world a better place by lifting the lowly to the lovely elite, to prefer the other person first. That's how Jesus saw the world. I think it would make the world a better place. How did Jesus see God? Well, Jesus saw God as that God was at work everywhere and everyone. Ephesians chapter one, for the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. Colossians, for by him and through him and for him, all things were created and in him all things hold together. Jesus, it was never a, I'm gonna take Jesus to their place. It was, I'm gonna go work out where Jesus is already at work in their place and help them name him. It's, it's Jesus saw God at work everywhere. Jesus saw God never existent, but always insistent or indwelling. Like, God does not exist, not to a Jesus person. And let me be clear, God is real, but existence is something outside of you. Something has to, an object outside of you. So this podium exists, this bottle of water exists, this microphone exists. And if I can figure out how to make it work for me, I can make it useful. It can work for my benefit. That's not God. That's not, how, that's not how Jesus saw God. Now, every other God in Jesus' world was existent. You went to their temple at their moment at their time and did their posture and their offering and then maybe that existent God where you could see his existent image acted on your behalf. That wasn't the God revealed in Christ. The God revealed in Christ was indwelling, an insistent spirit. As a matter of fact, in the first century, the Roman emperor Trajan killed first century Christians for the charge of, and this is true, atheism. The reason is, is because they asked, they asked the people, where does your God exist? Where's his temple? Where's his image? Where are people giving offerings so we can give our cut? And the Christians are like, our God doesn't exist. Our God indwells. Jesus saw God everywhere and everyone, never existent but insistent. And since God is at work everywhere and in everyone, always participate and cooperate with what God is up to, never manipulate. It's an incredibly moving way to see God. Remember there's this one time that Jesus was preaching a message to 5,000 people. And it says that everybody walked away. Everyone? That is an incredibly difficult rejection. 
Everybody walks away. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And remember what his disciples say? They don't say, well, no, we totally get what you're saying. They said, no, we're with you. Where else would we go? We don't have anywhere else to be. But then they said, look, we don't mean to be Johnny Raincloud here, but they didn't get what you were saying. And Jesus said, I know. But if my father has not prepared their hearts to hear what I'm saying, who am I to try to convince them? Like, what a profound trust in God. How many times does Jesus say, let him who has ears, let him hear? I I wish I saw God more like Jesus saw God, especially as a communicator. Let him who has ears, let him hear. How did Jesus see the world? No class systems, no us and them, no clean and unclean. God in the middle of all things, rescuing it, restoring it, renewing it. Never who is worthy, always who is thirsty. Using our freedom and our power to, to protect the most vulnerable to honor the poor and lift them to the lowly to the level of the elite. How did Jesus see God? With this profound trust that since he's at work, our only job is to cooperate with what God is up to and facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes based on what God is up to, not manipulate their response. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Um, how did Jesus apply scripture? Well, Jesus applied scripture never statically. Like a lot of the temptations of Jesus by people was, hey, we found this verse and we want you to apply it statically. And he never would. Jesus taught his disciples to reveal the love of God in how they applied scripture. And the word he used is to fulfill scripture. Like Jesus taught his followers to never ever obsess about being right about one verse, but always fulfill scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus saw the scripture as a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation to the final revelation of God in himself. Never static. Can you imagine a world where people saw the world how Jesus saw it? Where Jesus, where people saw God how Jesus saw God? And where people applied scripture where Jesus was? Can you imagine if just Christianity was known for that? Just the people who call themselves Christians. If they were known for being the people who see the world that way, see God that way, and apply scripture that way, I would say the world would be a better place. Which leads me to an observation about how words work. Words work like container ships. So here's what happens. So there's there's an etymology of a word. Uh, A word gets made up for something. And then that word gets on a container ship. And it goes through history. And it picks up different metaphors and meanings and figures of speech. And sometimes people win wars. Sometimes people lose wars. And the people who lose wars, those words become swear words. And that's how swear words work, right? And so, so to give you an example, there, there's a Hebrew word that gets, sadak that gets translated righteousness. Now, now sadak in, in the original language was pictures. And on the pictures, there was a fish hook with bait on it, an open door, and then a humble person. Essentially, the word righteousness in the original language was what drives us, what lures us. We des- what we desire is to make the humble's life better, to lift the humble up. That's a righteous person. The, 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 the related word would be generosity. So righteousness is the word sadak. Generous is the word sadaka. Sa- same exact word. But then that word righteousness got on a container ship and went through time. It picked up different metaphors and figures of speech. And by 1950 in America, righteousness was don't smoke, don't drink, don't go to R-rated movies. So how did something as profound as wake up every day desiring with all your heart to make somebody else's life better get dumbed down to a list of things we shouldn't do? Essentially, righteousness was wake up every day desiring with all your heart to make someone else's life better, not based on what they deserve, but affirming their worth. The same thing with holiness. 
So holiness, in, in its original etymology, was God has set you apart by trusting you with his breath. Anything God trusts with his breath is holy. So God breathes on scripture, for instance. The word is inspiration. Inspire means to breathe into something. Expire means to take breath out of something. Um, first thing in the Bible, God breathed on is dirt. And out came us. So we have been trusted with God's breath. And as long as we breathe, we're inspired dirt. As soon as we quit breathing, we're expired dirt. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, they didn't say people died. They said they expired. Like, hey, did you see that? He breathed out and didn't breathe in again. He's lost his breath. He expired. Is that. So, so, so inspired to, to God has inspired us by breathing into dirt. And here we are breathing people. And so as long as we're inspired dirt, we are holy dirt. We've been trusted with God's breath. We, another way to say that is we're holy ground. Sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but we are holy ground because God has trusted us with his breath. So, so, so then that word gets on a container ship and goes through time, picks up connotations. It ends up in 1950 in America is don't smoke. Holiness is don't smoke, don't drink. Don't, what, what? How did something as profound as God has trusted you with his breath, what are you going to do about it, get dumbed down to a list of things we don't do? Our behaviors are not holy or unholy. Our behaviors are a response to the gift of holiness. And unholy behaviors are a profane response to being trusted with God's breath. Profanity is the opposite of holy. Profane means to treat something that's sacred as if it's common. In other words, God has trusted you with his breath and you're wasting your life. What are you going to do about it? That's profane. But the holy, our life should be a fundamental response to God has trusted you with his breath. How are you going to live? What are you going to do about it? Your life is a response to the holy. And what Jesus called us to was to see the world a certain way. To see God a certain way and to apply scripture a certain way. And all that requires of us is to want it. To be yes people. To say yes. That every time the spirit of God nudges us to respond to the holy, we say yes. And the yes response is so important. Because yes creates momentum. Being a yes person creates momentum in our life. It creates vision. When we're yes people, we go into different cities or different places or different missions or different churches or different ministries. Whatever, and everywhere we're looking, there are infinite possibilities. We, we can see it everywhere because we're a yes person. Our next yes is critical to constantly. Paul said it this way in Colossians. Just as you received Christ, so continue to walk in him. Now, whatever your story is, all of us have received Christ different ways, but Everybody, no matter what your individual story is, we all responded to God. And so Paul is saying, hey, you received Christ by saying yes and responding. Keep saying yes every day. Why? Because that yes creates momentum. That yes creates vision. And our next yes is critical. Here's the problem. Distractions disturb our next yes. Like you imagine, it shouldn't be more difficult than this, hey, if we all see the world how Jesus saw the world, we all see God how Jesus saw God, and we all apply scripture how Jesus applied scripture, the world's gonna be a better place. Let's, let's do it. That, that seems like it'd be, that yes is very simple, uh, except for when distractions get in. Now, now, you might have noticed that we're a few minutes into this, and I haven't read the scripture yet. 
And the reason I didn't is because there's a punchline in the scripture that I really want us to wrestle with about what this means. The, the scripture's in Titus chapter 3. And let me set it up. Uh, Paul is writing to Titus about what the Christian community's response should be to government oppression. Now, let me remind you. The, the emperor was Nero, who was awful. He would regularly um, have Christians arrested. He would take a wooden stick and he would, he would impale them um, into their rectums uh, until they died. And then he would uh, cover them in tar and set them on fire to use as human candles for his backyard. So, um, whatever your problem is with your government leader, not Nero. Not Nero. Much worse. So, somebody said to me the other day, Shannon, I don't think there's ever been a day where governments were more cruel and corrupt. I'm like, uh, uh, Tiglath Pileser? Uh, Sennacherib? Um, you know, uh, you know, Artaxerxes? Um, Nero? Hello? So, Paul is writing to the Christian community. Now, let's remember, let's define that. What's a Christian community or a church? It's not a group of people who believe in Jesus. Demons believe in Jesus. It's a group of people seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, who see God how Jesus saw God, and who apply Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture. And that has all the things that we talked about earlier. And so this is what Paul says to Titus. Uh, this is Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. Stress these things. Focus on this. Prioritize this. So that those who've trusted in God, in other words, chose to see the world how Jesus saw the world, see God how Jesus saw God, and apply Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture, may be careful to devote. It's a big word, devote. Be devoted to it. Give 100% of your energy to it. To devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words, people who see the world how Jesus saw the world, who see God how Jesus saw God, and who apply Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture, they spend 100% of their energy doing good in their world in a way that profits and is excellent to everybody. But watch what, he goes, watch what he says after that. But avoid. So he says stress using all of your energy to doing good in your world in a way that makes the world better. But then he says avoid. Like that's a big avoid. Like this is a clear biblical New Testament command to Christ followers. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, and any arguments and quarrels about the law. Not because you're right or wrong about them, but because they're unprofitable and useless. Let's stop. Let's wrestle for a second with that. As Jesus followers, we're called to spend 100% of our energy doing good in our world. And no energy on controversies or quarrels about the law. How are we doing with that? This is the main thing. The main thing is facilitating and celebrating everybody's next yes with Jesus. What does that mean? It means connecting them to Christ. What does that mean? It means teaching people how to see the world, how Jesus saw the world, to see God, how Jesus saw God, and to apply scripture, how Jesus applied scripture, and to inspire them to be so moved by that that they make their world a better place. That's Christianity. And the world would be a better place. The problem is, is when Christianity gets distracted with controversies, or quarrels about the law. And here's what Paul says. He says, people who get into quarrels about the law and controversies, they tend to be divisive. Here's what he says. Um, warn a divisive person once. 
Then warn them a second time. And after that, defriend them. Have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. I would like to refocus us on the main point of the church and the main point of Christianity. When you said yes to Jesus, there were infinite possibilities in your spirit. You got to whatever city you're in and you went, oh, there's infinite possibilities to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. To connect people to Christ by teaching them how he saw the world, how he saw God and how he applied scripture. And to use all of our energy to make the world a better place. And before you knew it, the voices of the infinite possibilities to participate with what Jesus is up to in the world get dimmer. And, and, and it's because of distractions. And, and so at some point, like you might be listening to this and you're a pastor or a ministry leader or a, a volunteer in children's church or whatever the case may be. And you, you're, you're sitting wherever you are and you're going, how did I become a bad real estate agent, a bad mortgage banker? How did I end up dealing with government codes and parking easements? And how did I end up, who, I did not sign, I did not say yes to listening to 70 YouTube clips that my cousin Earl, who failed 10th grade science, is sending me. I didn't, I didn't sign up to be the political expert. I'm not called to do that. I'm definitely not called to be someone's medical professional. I, I am called to center people on Jesus, to inspire them to see the world how he saw it, see God how he saw it, and to apply scripture, how Jesus applied scripture, and to inspire that, to do good in our world, to make our world a better place. And somehow, I've got people asking me to deal with real estate and deal with this and financial things, and, 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 and I'm, I'm called to be, they're wanting me to be an amateur theologian. I'm not an amateur theologian. I don't know about all that stuff. N.T. Wright's a theologian. Tim Keller's a theologian. David De Silva's a theologian. De Eugene Peterson, they're theologians. I'm, I'm just, I'm called to connect people to Jesus and then inspire them to do good in our world. And somehow I'm being expected to do this and this and be an amateur theologian and, and be a political expert. And now people want me to be their medical professional? I'm not called for any of that. No wonder we're distracted and a bit depressed and anxious. We were never called to do those things. We were called to connect people to Jesus and then inspire them to behave in such a way that changes the world by seeing the world, how Jesus saw it, God, how Jesus saw him and applying scripture, how Jesus applied it. The problem is, is controversies and quarrels about the law have seeped in when clearly, clearly we're called to avoid those things. Um, let me ask a few questions about this because good sermons are meant to be wrestled with for application. One, where do our imaginations of our beliefs need to be adjusted? Not adjusting the belief, but adjusting the picture of how those beliefs work. Um, where do I see the world differently uh, than Jesus? Is there any place that I'm a Christian in the sense that I believe in Jesus, but I haven't crossed the line of seeing the world how Jesus saw the world? No class systems unclean, not never who's worth it, but always who wants it, who's thirsty. It's, it's, it's always, where am I using my freedom and my liberty to, to protect the most vulnerable, to lift the lowly, and to make those weaker in conscience safer? That's how Jesus taught us to see the world. Where do I see God differently than Jesus saw God? 
this profound trust that God is at work in everything and everyone, and my job is to participate and cooperate, never manipulate. Um, where do I apply scripture differently than Jesus? Have I ever got caught in the rut of some sort of static, statically appropriated verse I found in Leviticus when actually Jesus called us to fulfill scripture, not simply be right about it? Uh, next question, what is my next yes? Where, where do I need to just reground myself and say my next yes? I need some momentum, I need some vision, I need some direction, and I'm gonna say my next yes by connecting people to Christ and using all my energy to doing good in my world and avoiding controversies and any quarrels about the law. What has distracted me from my next yes? Maybe we need to take a second and not with any shame or guilt, but just ask for forgiveness for being caught up in controversies and quarrels about the law when it's clear that uh, Jesus' people aren't meant to do that. Um, have I succumbed to those things? I, I, the, the last question I'd like to ask is this. God has entrusted me with his breath. What am I gonna do about it? My brothers and sisters, I want us to wrestle with that. You woke up today breathing God's air. He trusted you with his breath. Your whole life is a response to the holy. God's trusted you with his holiness. What are you gonna do about it? Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We pray that you would activate something in your life and shift your life towards Jesus. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, just click follow. We love you. Have a blessed week.